This is the Ruminant Podcast. I'm Jordan Marr. The Ruminant is a website dedicated to sharing good ideas for farmers and gardeners. On the website, you'll find my podcast, the odd essay, book reviews, tool reviews, and user-submitted photos of their own farming and gardening practices. It's all at ruminantpod.com. I hope you'll check it out. All right, let's do a podcast. Jason on Salt Springs uh, Island was one of my first mentors. He's been growing these crops for over 20 years, and others around here had been as well. So I learned that it was possible, and I just started doing seed trials on my own. And that has grown into a community effort of using dry legumes and grains as a way to more empower people how to eat locally in the wintertime with crops that they can easily store and eat 12 months out of the year. That's Chris Rome. Krista's interest in small-scale legume and grain production started with a question. Krista was interested in sourcing as much of her diet as she could from local sources, and she was wondering why it was so hard to find the grains and legumes she was so interested in eating. She found out that there just wasn't a lot being produced, so she set out to learn how to do it herself, and she's come a long way since then. She's become really good at producing legumes and grains on a small scale, to the point that she now offers workshops on growing legumes and grains on a small scale, and also has a website from which she sells a book on the same subject, as well as some of the legumes and other seeds that she grows. You can find Chris's step-by-step guide to growing your own staples, as well as a bunch of other really useful information, and some of the seeds and legumes that she grows, at backyardbeansandgrains.com. But for now, I hope you enjoy the conversation we had all about what she does. Here we go. Krista Rome, thanks a lot for coming on the Ruminant Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jordan. Krista, you've written a really nifty little manual called Growing Dry Beans and Grains in the Pacific Northwest, a step-by-step guide to producing your own staple foods. I've read the manual. I think it's really, really good, which is why I invited you on the podcast today. But before we go any further, I think the first question I want to ask you is, uh, what would you say to any listeners out there who are not in the Pacific Northwest? Is there going to be anything in this conversation for them, or is this book really just for people in that uh, Cascadia climate? Well, my book was was tailored quite a bit to just the basics of what you might know need to know to grow these crops in our cool Pacific Northwest climate. So it's going to apply to other areas with shorter, uh, cooler summers, um, it's also going to give a lot of basic information that would apply to anybody on things like um, cooking tips, how to do the harvest and threshing and seed cleaning of these kinds of crops. So I think anybody, anybody anywhere that isn't familiar with growing dry seeded crops, um, such as the dry legumes and grains and seed crops in the book, uh, they they can learn just the basics of what it takes to grow those and how they're different than growing reg- regular fresh vegetables. For sure. And you know what? I've read, I've, I've used your manual in my climate, which is uh, very hot and dry. And I can say that there was plenty in there for me as a complete beginner. So I can back up what you just said. So we'll talk a little bit about more about more about the book in in a few minutes. But I thought we'd start off with just delving into your history a bit, Krista. So, so what was what was it that led you to become interested in in grain and, and, and legume production on a small scale? Well, I think it was about uh, 2008 or so. There was three or four excellent books that came out back-to-back on the subject of uh, localizing our food system and the importance of reducing our our food miles. That's how far we ship our food. 
And that was what sparked my own interest in sort of experimenting with uh, how many local foods I could bring into my own diet. And, you know, there's so many thriving farmers markets around here and support for local farmers. Summertime is really not where the biggest challenge is. It's, it's in the off season. And um, so what we need is more crops that we can easily store and eat all of the year. And that complements other, other um, approaches like winter gardening and food preservation. But these are very basic, uh, easy to grow, easy to store, easy to prepare crops that can uh, add so much and has added a lot to my own homesteading diet. And Krista, one thing you mentioned in the introduction to your manual is that uh, while it's fairly easy to find various kinds of vegetables for most of the year in in Cascadia in the Pacific Northwest, it's not all that easy to find um, grains and legumes and and really at any time of year that's produced locally. And you mentioned you kind of go into a little bit why that is. Why why aren't we seeing lots of uh, commercial uh, legume and grain production in your neck of the woods? Well, there's several reasons that I've identified. Uh, one of the biggest reasons is just the basic economics of land prices and the fact that these kinds of crops are most efficiently produced with large tractors and commu- uh, combines on la- large acreages. And there's, you know, that poses a real difficulty for farmers around here to compete financially with farmers in in the eastern part of uh, Washington, which is where I live, or the Midwest, where land prices are so much lower and uh, farmers can afford to to grow these kinds of field crops more economically. Um, That's the main reason we don't see them more commercially produced. The main reason I don't see them in general is just uh, sort of lack of infrastructure and lack of knowledge, and farmers have to gear up in a totally different way than they do with the fresh veggies, which is the the way they can make better money around here on a commercial scale. And and so when you decided you wanted to make inquiries into producing for yourself, what did you do? Well, the first thing I did was put out a little survey to every, um, I targeted organic farmers just because that's how I like to grow, but I sent sent a survey out to uh, all farmers on um, uh, Whatcom and Skagit County down here asking whether they've had other, ever grown dry legumes or greens, um, if so, why they aren't doing it anymore, um, if not, why not, just trying to not reinvent the wheel. If there's knowledge out there as to why this isn't possible or isn't easy, I wanted to find that out first before just diving in like a naive uh, know, <laughs> person that, that, you know, idealist, I guess. Um, and it, I actually didn't get a whole lot of feedback. Um, it, it was discovering a few key people in the region that have been growing uh, dry beans and grains for decades that, that really showed me that it was possible. And so t- I would love to hear a little bit about your very first season trying it out. Tell us uh, some, of the, some of the successes and some of the uh, mistakes or, or, or failures that you had. So the first season was uh, pretty interesting. I had been a a small-scale backyard gardener for many years, but this was the first year I I actually tried what you might call farming, which is what I think of as there's a tractor tilling the soil for me, and I'm uh, weeding things with a hoe, and things are in straight lines, and it just... um, 
it, it was definitely a change in my my growing habits. But I found many different types of dry beans to trial. I did flax, uh, holus oats, quinoa, flower corn, amaranth, and soybeans. I might be forgetting something, but I trialed all of those the first year. And uh, amazingly, I can't even think of anything that didn't work. I, I had great success, um, was very inspired by how well most of those crops did did for me, and um, just plowed forward after well, I know that I know in your book you mentioned that one you 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 were surprised by a few things or challenged by a few things. I know that you discovered that lentils uh, don't yield very highly, and I, I mentioned that one because lentils, mm-hmm. French lentils, were one of the ones I tried myself this year, and I I didn't even end up bothering to harvest. There was so little on each plant. Yeah, a couple of things I didn't expect. The oats have been much more of a challenge than I expected. Um, what we're looking for, for is a holeless oat, and there's lots of different varieties out there, but that holeless oats and holeless barley being what is more suited to a backyard gardener or homesteader because they're easy to thresh. They don't have a hard hole attached that requires machinery. So I have yet to find a holeless oat that actually 100% threshes clean. That doesn't leave a few little tooth breakers in the mix. Oh, um, right. So that's been that's been a little frustrating. And then, of course, quinoa. Everybody wants to grow quinoa these days, um, and it's it's got it's got several challenges that you know I'm still personally trying to overcome. One being the most common weed we have, lambs quarters, uh, is is able to cross pollinate with quinoa um and two is that the issue of cleaning the saponins the soapy bitter residue uh, off the the grain to make it actually palatable and another is just the climate the finding a variety that is grown in a similar climate in south america a similar latitude i think will help have more success right Okay, well, despite some of these these challenges and some in the past and some ongoing, it, it you have been very successful over over these years and you've learned a lot. Can you give me a sense? So 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 I'll just frame this because we were talking before. Uh, you have your own business that involves producing seed for sale as well as giving uh, workshops and that sort of thing. So you're growing, um, and and I think what's relevant is that currently it's just yourself. You don't have any employees. So. What are you producing in one season? What What is one person able to do if they have enough backyard space? Well, um, I've been growing the last couple of years about an acre, and a large majority of that is grain corn and dry bean varieties. Um, I've produced probably three to 400 pounds a year in dry beans plus other legumes like soup peas and um, garbanzos and favas um, plus a couple hundred pounds of corn and then all smaller varieties of the other grains and some vegetables. As far as a backyard gardener, I people with the smallest spaces, I like to start them out with uh, pole beans, make a bean teepee or a trellis because they'll get a lot more yield for a smaller footprint since you have the vertical growth. Uh, pole beans or pole soup peas. Um, also, something like flaxseed is is maybe a grain type crop, seed crop to start with for someone with a smaller space because you don't use so much flaxseed every time you eat it. It's not like you need steps every time you make a loaf of bread like you do with wheat. 
That takes a lot more space. Um, corn is a lot more productive than any of the other grains. So if you're going to pick just one grain and you have limited space, I highly recommend grain corn. And you could get, for the beans, you get about a pound per 10 row feet. So that's two and a half cups of beans for, for 10 linear feet of plants. And you would get more if you were doing a, a, pole, a pole variety, two to three times more of that. So, so I mean, it sounds like your conclusion has been that if someone wants to set out to do this, not just for fun, but to actually substantially, you know, stock their, their pantry for the winter, that, that with, with a reasonable size backyard garden, they can do this. I do believe that, a reasonable size backyard garden. If you have a real small city lot, you maybe are better off doing some of the, the prime, you know, vegetables, just enough for your salads and, you know, your fresh tomatoes and whatnot. But if you really want year-round food, you really should devote most of that space to winter crops and and storage crops. And like I said, the, the three most productive, I think, are the grain corn, the, the pole beans and soup peas and favas. Especially, I guess, if you are really committed to eating super hyper-locally, there's going to be lots of other people, and commercial or not, who are focusing on uh, kind of the more the vegetables and stuff. The yeah, you can food. go. Yeah, you can definitely go out and buy your summer veggies. Well, depending on where you live, of course. If you have access to farmers markets and food co-ops, though, you probably chances are can find produce in the summer season. Right. Right. Okay, so well, look, let's let's talk a little bit about your manual. I just, I just want to, you know, I want to give people a sense of what's in here because I've personally found it really helpful. And one compliment I want to pay you is that it's just really well formatted or laid out. Um, you know, I I own Gene Lodgson's um, book, um, raising what is it, raising grain on a small small scale, raising mm-hmm. grain on a small scale. Um, small scale got, grain raising. There I we go. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, it's a great book, but it's it's more of an investment. And what I what I really appreciate about about your your manual is that there you're really succinct in there, and you've got photos for for the different um, crops that you're talking about. And it's just mm-hmm. it's a great it's a great reference when you're when you're just about to go out and try lentils for the first time or flax, you can flip this thing open and get a few important pointers before you head out there. Well, that's really excellent to hear because that was what I set out to do. I didn't want to write. Um, the whole history of all these different grains and everything you know about their biology, because I figure there's other books out there, genes included, that can give you all that information uh, when you want, and written by people that are experts in those crops uh, and their biology. I just wanted people to be able to actually go out and do it and to know real specific tips on making it work in this climate, but also specific tips on how to do the harvest and processing when you don't have fancy, expensive machinery. You know, just make it very accessible to people so that they didn't feel like they had to have anything special other than a tarp and some boots and and, uh, and a box fan. Absolutely. And I think, I think that's, that's what's great is your, your book, your, your manual is like, it's really accessible and it's not overwhelming. And I think it's a good place to start because of all the tips for each crop, but also you've got a great resource list at the end that lists some, some further uh, reading recommendations and also sources for seed. Uh, so yeah, no, it's, it's great. And I, now I just want to get you to help me take us through it here. Uh, what I thought we'd do is just pick a few crops and I'll just get you to talk a little bit about growing them. Uh, so, so maybe we could just start with, with the, the, the dry bean in general and, and some considerations that people need to have, 
uh, if they just want to, I mean, it seems to me that would maybe be a good place to start for people, wouldn't it? To, 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 to focus on trying to get a few pounds of dry beans put away for the winter. Um, from what I've seen with uh, people in my area that, that come to my workshops and come to the get teach for me at the farmer's market, the dry beans are really the one that, that hooks people and draws them in and gets them excited because there are so many different varieties, colors, shapes, patterns, and folks are familiar with, with cooking them a lot of times, and they're just very fun, easy to harvest and process. It's, it's very easy to get children involved in in the dry beans as well which is encouraging okay well since 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 a lot of people listening will at the very least uh or many people listening will have experience growing beans of different types let's just talk about processing them uh you know are they are they very difficult to to thresh and to store Beans are pretty easy. Um, I, I'm going to back up one step before we jump back to processing, and that is the, a big difference in the beginning of the season between green uh, beans that are grown for green beans and beans grown for dry beans, and that is your planting dates are much less flexible for any of these crops to get them to mature in a short season. If you if you are in a short season area, um, getting them in the ground at the primo, t- primo time is going to give you an easier harvest so that they dry down in time by the end of the summer. So um, there's a lot of information on planting dates in the book, but that's going to vary depending on where folks live. Right. The harvesting, yeah, the harvesting, so basically you just let the plants completely dry out in the field. And unless you got them in really late or have some freak um, really early set of storms where it just won't stop raining and things are starting to mold, you can pull them out if they're mature but not dry and hang them in the barn. But it's just so much easier to process them if they're dry before you harvest them. Um, there's a couple different ways to do it. You can pick the individual pods, which actually is a lot quicker than it sounds. Uh, you can cut the whole plant out. I like to cut it with pruners at the base of the plant so that I leave the roots and all that dirt behind because that makes it hard to clean later. You can prune off the base of the plants and throw them in a heap on the tarp. Um, And the threshing, the easiest thing to do is to have everything on a tarp on on top of a hard surface, like a paved driveway or in the barn. And just stomp around on them. If they're nice and dry, that's uh, the threshing will go pretty easy. Um, you can also have the pods in a bowl and just be sitting around in the house doing it with uh, th- uh, pulling the, the beans out of the pod with your kids or in front of the TV or while you're chatting. And the one step up in the processing that a lot of people are going to on a small scale is getting a little little old wood churns and converting them into threshing machines. So that's a piece of equipment if, you're, if your body doesn't really want to do all that stomping or if it's tedious to um, thresh them by hand. That's yeah, and I, actually, I, I've, got, <laughs> I've got plans for a uh, – I've shared on, on the ruminant. I've, I've shared plans for converting an old wood chipper into mm-hmm. a threshing machine if people are interested in that. Uh, but I can say, yeah, I mean, if you don't want to, if you don't want to do any of the larger scale, I mean, relatively speaking type threshing, you can, I think you're right. I've, I've spent, uh, a good amount of winter hours just sitting in front of a movie and, and pulling the mm-hmm. beans out of the pods and that works just fine. And especially if you have extra hands to help you. Yeah. And if you enjoy that, I really enjoy sitting around, uh, threshing the beans by hand. 
uh, some winters, and then you know other times I'm not in the mood. But they're they're a pretty nice crop to work with, and it feels kind of like the old village days, especially if you get some family members or friends involved doing it together. So, Krista, let's talk about grains and seeds. Uh, what what I mean for for a complete for a complete beginner, what what do you what's one you recommend starting out with that's uh, not too difficult and and rewarding in terms of what you get for harvest? Well, do you want to talk talk about the corn separately? Uh, no, no. Let's well, okay. let's talk, let's start with corn. Tell tell me about corn because I haven't I haven't tried I haven't tried saving uh, grain corn myself. Yeah. So there's several different types of of grain corn, and it it tends to require less water and less fertility than sweet corn. So people that have been stymied in the past by corn not doing so well for them, they might want to try a, a less dema- a lower demand uh, grain corn and see how it does. They still like a little more fertility than your, your typical, um, you know, they need more than regular grains, but uh, but, it's, but it's not bad. Uh, if you get some of the heirloom varieties, they've been sort of adapted over the years to, to not be in such heavy feeders like these, these new hybrids are. And uh, corn has evolved in the Americas um, basically with hand tools, and that's different than most of your traditional grains, which came about in, in the European continent with the ox and the plow. And so corn ends up being actually a lot more suitable for your low-tech backyard farmer. Uh, it's very easy to grow without any specialized equipment. And it's very easy to harvest and shell a lot of corn with uh, very uh, inexpensive hand tools. As composed, uh, compared to if you want to grow a lot of wheat, you start quicker getting into the realm of wanting some more specialized equipment. So that's that's my pitch for corn. Um, and also the fact that there's so much that's under such threat from GMO contamination right now that I feel like it's a very important crop for us to steward. If you have an isolated site or you're willing to do some hand pollinating to just keep some of these short season green corn varieties uh, pure and, and alive for the future. Now, Chris, is it fair to say, though, that, that corn presents kind of a challenge in terms of people's familiarity with it in the kitchen? I mean, I, to be honest, I wouldn't know. I mean, I know I'm aware of what I could do with corn, but I wouldn't know where to begin. I've, you know what I mean? I've never worked with it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, starting from seed and, and, and doing something with it to, for eating. What, what, what do you do? Yeah, that's a really good point. So, well, the easiest one to start with might be popcorn because people are familiar that with that. And the only trick is find a variety that will mature in your area and then you have to make sure it's it's nice and dry before you pop it, or you won't get a very high, or you'll get a lot of kernels that don't pop. But um, I found an excellent popcorn that I'm very happy with. So that that one's pretty pretty easy for folks to relate to. Uh, there's also my my favorite is making tortillas. So that's dent corn is the most traditional use for making masa and tortillas. And it involves that process where you soak the kernels in uh, pickling lime overnight and then rinse it off, and then you grind it up as a wet dough and make your tortillas. You can also make pozole, which is similar to hominy. A lot more people are familiar with hominy. That's made with lye, and pozole is made with pickling lime. 
and it's a, a cooked whole grain corn. It's very hearty, uh, slightly chewy, uh, dense, uh, nutritious addition to any kind of soup or stew. So you can cook it on the side uh, just as a cooked whole grain. But this is where I start people off because they don't have to have any sort of grinder, no equipment whatsoever. All they need to do is go to the to the canning section and get the $2 bag of pickling lime and that's all they need other than the corn. So that's, that's I think, that's what I pass on at the farmer's market to folks that are buying my corn is I give them the recipe, I give them the lime, and they're very excited. You know, they don't have to have an electric grinder to make the cornmeal or the polenta, you know, which would be other other options for growing green corn is get a grinder and just make cornmeal out of it. Right, right. And and now a general question about, about all of these different legumes and grains and seeds. Is it, is it is it true that they're a lot tastier compared to what we're used to getting from from the store? Well, I think so. Um, the the corn I do tortilla making classes. I've probably had six or eight different classes, and everybody that's ever come is just amazed at how much tastier the tortillas are than what they're used to. But uh, you know, I don't trust my own opinion all the time. I always think everything I grow is is t- way tastier than anything else <laughs> in the universe. So <laughs> I think right. gar- gardeners can be biased that way. Um, but I definitely think there's a, there's a lot more nutrition in some of these varieties that are um, more more heirloom or older varieties or ones that have evolved uh, in backyard gardens or just with breeders that are focused on things like flavor and nutrition as opposed to just getting the highest yields or the the best resistance to the roundup that, that that's being sprayed on it. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Good point. Um, okay, and I'm jumping all over the place here, but but I've I've just got all these different questions for you. In your kitchen, do you tend to have one kind of all-purpose grinder for all these different things, or do you have like six different types of grinders for different applications? <laughs> So I have a hand crank Masa mill, which is Corona or Estrella are the main brands. The Masa is a wet dough, so you don't need that extra power of an electric machine. Uh, I also have an electric um, grinder that uh, it's actually the guts out of a, an old commercial coffee mill, but that's what I was using for my other grains last fall. I think I'm not going to keep doing that because I feel like eating the grains in their whole form is really preferable most of the time as opposed to making them into flour. I can't talk a whole lot about grinding because I'm gluten intolerant, so I can't even eat the wheat or the barley or really the oats that I grow. Ah. Uh, But if I did, I would be eating them as a whole grain. I think to take real full advantage of the nutritional value and the fact that it was probably a lot of labor to grow them. I want to really honor them in their full full state. But for folks that are wanting to grind anything other than corn, will grind pretty well in a regular coffee grinder if you don't need large amounts. If you just want a cup or two to make a recipe, that's what I recommend. And it's nice and fresh, and you don't have to have a fancy, fancy kind of grinder to do it. Okay, cool. Um... All right, so I'm now let's go back out to the garden and let's talk about buckwheat. Is that one that you'd recommend to the to the new uh, backyard grower? Buckwheat, did you say? Yeah. Yeah, buckwheat is one of I think one of the the more valuable 
um, crops out there, it has so many different uses beyond just the food value. It, it's got great abundant flowers for the pollinators. Uh, it can be used as a cover crop. I believe it um, pulls up the and concentrates the phosphorus, which is lacking in a lot of soils. And it's extremely easy to grow. It tends to choke out the weeds pretty darn well after maybe one hoeing. Um, easy to harvest and thresh. It's a little lower yielding than some of the others. So there's trade-offs there. It's easy to grow, but it's lower yielding. So if you have a limited space, maybe it's not your first choice. Uh, if you have plenty of space but not as much labor, it might be a better option. And one thing to point about both the buckwheat and the millet is that they actually naturally have a hard hole around the grain, and those holes are normally removed with fairly expensive machinery. So when you grow it for yourself, you're, I use them as flour. You can grind them up with the hole and... It's a perfectly good flour, but you, if you wanted to get the whole off and cook it as a whole grain, you'd have to devise some kind of low-tech deholing machine. I see. Okay. And all right, I'm gonna now. I want to ask you about flax. Uh, I I tried growing some golden flax this year. I uh, I didn't get a. Well, actually, I got an all right yield, and it's beautiful. And it wasn't. I didn't find it that hard to 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 thresh and to clean. Has that been your experience? Okay. I, I think the flash the flax is very easy to grow har, uh, harvest and fresh the the one thing about the flax that's difficult is the weeding it doesn't tend to shade out the weeds as well as some of the other crops so I tend to have to weed it about twice as much as as, as the rest but it, it loves uh, growing during a cool spring I plant it here in western Washington in about mid-april it's it's ready for harvest right during our our nice summer drought season, so there's no stress or pressure about getting it out quickly. Um, you just let it dry down, and I use a little $10 serrated hand sickle to harvest the flax and most of the other grains with. I just grab a clump with my left hand and cut with the other hand right below the, the base of the um, flowering part of the stalk. Right. Okay. And um, so another general question, what are you using to plant most of this stuff? So is a lot of the stuff being started indoors or is it mostly being direct seeded? No, this is actually the first year I've ever had access to a greenhouse. So um, I most, most is direct seeded. The two things that I don't direct seed are the amaranth and the quinoa. And that's because they look exactly like our most common weeds, the, the pigweed weedy amaranth and the lamb's quarters that I mentioned. And even if I plant them in very straight lines that are marked, I still can't tell them apart when they come up. Uh, so I like to do those as transplants. Uh, everything else is direct seeded, although certain things you definitely could uh, start ahead of time in pots if you wanted, uh, the beans and the soybeans. Uh, the corn can be transplanted if you have a little bit of a short season and want to get a jump on it. Um, but most of them do grow quite well just in the field. And how I plant is basically making a furrow with a pointy hoe and dropping the seeds in by hand. Uh, sometimes I'll I'll borrow a Earthway seeder. It's about a hundred fifty dollar tool to uh, plant the seed a lot quicker. 
right. but not usually. <laughs> and uh, you have you have spacing instructions for all these different um, seeds and grains and stuff. But uh, is there a fair like are they fairly um, tolerant of denser planting? I mean, like I don't know. Let's just take flax as an example. I mean, you have here that you know aim for one seed per inch. What have got? What if? What are the consequences of three seeds per inch? I think you probably get about the same harvest because your plants, each plant will be a lot smaller and skinnier and they'll be competing for the same amount of nutrients out of the same area of soil. So um, I've definitely had times where I, I, I'm sprinkling teeny tiny seed in a furrow and I'm really not getting them spaced out as much as I should. And it doesn't really hurt anything. It, it just, um, a, lot of, a lot of these plants will take take uh take up the extra space or squeeze themselves into a smaller space whatever you get them but it doesn't tend to affect the yield a whole lot right okay so look let's just do one let's do one more or rather two more i'd love to just just finish this off by talking about amaranth and quinoa uh i think if i'm not mistaken my second episode ever for the podcast was with dan jason on the topic Mm -hmm. of amaranth and quinoa and one thing he suggested was that he was he was making the case for amaranth at least for me up in this hot dry climate because it it does a little better than quinoa in that case um but one point he made uh was that he really advocates it in general because it's a beautiful plant and it's easier to harvest it doesn't have that soapy seed coating that quinoa does and i found all of that to be true i mean we had beautiful plants with huge heads and really decent yields but i just have to say and i'm wondering how you feel i just he also suggested that it's essentially like the same in the kitchen as quinoa. And I didn't find that to be the case. I, I found it not nearly as enjoyable, unfortunately, to consume. I like quinoa a lot better. What's, what's your take? Well, as far as the kitchen goes, I really like to mix amaranth half and half with quinoa or with millet. Of course, that would probably be millet from the store since ours has holes on them. But a little bit larger seeded grain balances that tiny seed of amaranth, which tends to be a more sticky kind of product. <laughs> um, you can also use amaranth as it makes a teeny tiny little popcorn. Oh, pop it in cool. a cast iron pan. And they're very, very small, but you can uh, pop it and eat it as a snack or put it on your cereal or some such thing. And it's also an incredibly nutritious, high-protein, uh, gluten-free flour. So there's, there's, other, there's other uses for for amaranth and it's a little bit more challenging where I'm at because our summers are cooler and shorter you really getting it started in the greenhouse and giving it some extra nitrogen tends to, to help um, but it's it's a, it's a little bit trickier here on the harvest end yeah well I really like the suggestion simply of mixing quinoa with amaranth I wish I'd done that the the mm-hmm. winter we had it because um uh, yeah, I just found that cooking up amaranth as a porridge, it just was not nearly as enjoyable of, as, as doing the same thing with quinoa. So that's that's a good right. suggestion. Right. Um, yeah. So anything else you want to say about either of those crops? I mean, are you, you're still, it sounds like you're still struggling to find the right varieties of each for, for your yeah, moisture climate. I, I'm still trying to get them to cooperate as well as these other, these other crops. Um, I'm still working with them, but they seem to be be a little trickier to find the right variety, but there's a lot of folks working with them and researching them these days. So it shouldn't be too long into the future. We have it figured out a little, a little better. Uh, And back, back to, back to one last general question, Krista, 
Are there common mistakes that newbies make when they when they decide to uh, to get into this in the backyard? A couple things that I see. Um, one is with storage, which we didn't talk about yet. But when I before I store uh, any of these dry dry crops, I make sure they're nice and dry. And usually they get extra drying time after harvest before I thresh. But then after they're threshed, I usually have them in. Uh, paper grocery sacks around the house for maybe another month, even if they're stacked up, but some are dry. And I don't use any fancy moisture absorbent or anything else in my storage, but I think that extra drying that I give them helps a lot so that I either put those paper bags in uh, Rubbermaid-type bins or even in glass jars for my uh, seed packing. And I, I hear a, a lot of people mentioning that their beans got moldy in the jar. Um, over the winter, and that would be that they didn't let them dry good enough, either on the vine or after threshing, and then they put them in an airtight container. So if you have any concern about whether or not it's dry enough, just don't put it in an airtight tight <laughs> container, <laughs> and they won't molt, because that's a lot of work to lose to, <laughs> to come back a few months later and, and if it's moldy. Um, and then the other, the other main mistake is... Uh, not not planting in in the good planting windows you know not getting stuff in soon enough so that it's maturing when our rains have already come back as opposed to when it's nice and dry and um, and and folks uh, harvesting before crop is mature so really if at all possible let that crop fully mature and fully dry down in the field um, and they can get rained on a little it's usually not a big deal to have a few rainstorms. It's just when it's cold and dewy every night and raining every day that they get you to start be in to trouble. Think about pulling, pulling things a little early. <laughs> well, that, I was laughing as you just it described the moldiness in uh, in the pantry because I that first season when we grew amaranth, we grew quite a bit of it at least for our purposes. We probably had ten pounds or something of seed and. Uh, I mean, most of it ultimately was went moldy, and I I, I I shudder to think about how we stored it. I mean, we 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 ziplocked it, you know, in plastic bags, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, I, I I now realize that was just asking for trouble, and and that's what we got. We 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 even did a trip to the Grand Canyon from from up here in Canada that year that winter, and I I took some down. I I took the risk crossing the border with it, and. Uh, we ate moldy amaranth porridge in the Grand oh, Canyon. No. <laughs> we were down there. Uh, it was still great, though. Still, still, it's like you said. It always tastes good when you grow it. So, <laughs> um, can I pitch a couple of crops that I think are overlooked that are super well suited for us here? Uh, I would. We haven't mentioned. <laughs> I would. That 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 would be delightful. Please do. Okay, um, and just. A second on wheat and barley, since we didn't talk about those grains. There's a lot of research currently being done on those crops by uh, with Washington State University down here uh, at the Mount Vernon uh, Research Center. So people that are especially interested in those crops should get a hold of the folks there at WSU and see if they'll share some information on varieties with them. Uh, they're going to have the most up-to-date information for organic systems. And then the crops that, that we didn't mention, the legumes that uh, I think people need to pay more attention to in, in a cooler, shorter climate are, are soup peas and fava beans. Uh, fava beans are something that if you're in a 
temperate enough zone like we are on the water here, you can plant them in the fall and they'll overwinter. So that's great to have something green on the soil over the winter when it's getting pounded by rain and fixing nitrogen at the same time. And it also puts your labor at a different time of the year. So you're planting in the fall and your harvest is ahead of everything else in the summer when you're not already busy harvesting all of your other legumes and grains. And um, the soup peas, uh, we used to grow lots and lots of uh, peas around here. They also thrive during a cooler spring and dry down right during our drought season. So really just learning how to cook with those with those types of legumes, uh, either remembering how or learning from, from, from fresh and teaching others how to use them, I think uh, will go a long way towards improving our local food system. Right on, Krista. Well, I think uh, I think with with more guests like you, I could just start a self service podcast where you just phone in and do the whole thing yourself. Uh, <laughs> clearly, you're pa- clearly you're passionate about this stuff, and and uh, that's great. Thank you. So I want to just close by telling everyone listening that I'm I'm looking at a page of Krista's book, and each page in the book, once you get into the crop section, which is the main section of the book, each page is a different crop, and it tells you there's a little introduction to each one. Uh, each so yeah each crop has one page which means you don't get overwhelmed with info and, and you get a little bit of introduction and then there's information on planting maintenance harvest threshing seed saving cooking yields and labor uh, research varieties and and then suggestions for additional information and 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 Krista manages to get this all very succinctly in one page and even include a photo and I think she's you've well she I think you've done a great job Krista so thank you for writing it um, Please tell us where, how people can get your manual and, and how people can get seeds from you. Okay. Well, I have a website. It is www.backyardbeansandgrains.com. And on there are all of my seeds as well as the manual. And you can get uh, the manual, the hard copy is $20, or you can order the PDF I send to you by email for $10. If you want to save some paper and some money, uh, I also sell locally in uh, Bellingham, Washington, and I'm at our farmers market here on Saturdays. And I also am happy to talk to folks over the phone that have questions that the website doesn't answer. And yeah, well, great. That's it for now. All right. Well, Krista, thanks a lot for coming on the Ruminant Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Always fun to talk on the subject. So that's it, folks. Hope you enjoyed it. And remember, you can find all kinds of content, uh, past episodes of The Ruminant, as well as uh, some pretty interesting photo-based posts at theruminant.ca. Go check it out. Thanks a lot. And don't forget, if you have something you want to share via a voice recording, something interesting you're doing on your farm, that you can explain in one or two minutes leave me a voicemail i'll put it up on the podcast 250-767-6636 thanks folks see you next time Why would we live?
live in a place that don't want us a place that is trying to bleed us dry we could be happy with life in the country with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands i've been doing a lot of thinking some real soul searching and here's my final resolve i don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong so we'll run right out into the wilds and graces we'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees and live life like it was meant to be